Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. It is 24 minutes to 10 o'clock and uh, thank you very much for staying with us. Good morning to you, Chris. Morning. Good morning to you. I'm very excited about the story and I'm curious to know how far are we from this becoming reality? DNA robots programmed to kill cancer cells? Well, I saw this and I thought, wow, that's an amazing story. It's a group of researchers in America at Harvard, Sean Douglas and his colleagues. It's a paper in the journal Science this week. What they've done is to, by understanding how DNA curls itself up, they have taken a string of DNA letters all joined together, which are about 7,300 genetic letters long. And by choosing the genetic letters very carefully, they have come up with this sequence which folds itself into a shape which resembles a little hexagonal box. So there's a hole in the middle, and it's got these hinged edges so it will close up on itself. And it even has two latches, which are activated by special chemical keys on the side. Mm -hmm. And what they're able to do with this virus-sized box is pack a cargo inside it of various molecules. And when certain chemicals in the environment interact with those latches on the side... They cause them to spring open, and rather like a tuck box in a dormitory at midnight during a midnight feast at boarding school, (laughs) then the box springs open and out come the cargo molecules. And they've demonstrated in a proof of principle here that you can program these latches to respond to a whole host of different chemicals. And in this case, they do it with some cancer cells. So they choose cells in a dish which have certain markers, chemically speaking, on their surface. And they put into the DNA boxes a chemical which makes those cells stop growing. It's an anti-growth signal. They deploy the DNA nanorobots onto these cells And hey presto, they ping open, out come the drug molecules and the cells switch off. Mm -hmm. And they've even demonstrated that you can use them to go and collect cargo. They did another experiment where they got their little DNA robots to go and collect a a sample of something called flagellin, which is the protein that salmonella and other bacteria use to swim around, and pack it inside themselves and then go up to a white blood cell. And when they meet a white blood cell, release the stuff onto the white blood cell so that it knows to start responding. Mm. So they're saying, and, and I quote, that this design could inspire the designs of with different selectivities and biologically active payloads for tr- cell targeting tasks. That, that's what they say. So basically, you're at the stage now where you can build a molecule or a molecular robot from a string of DNA letters. Mm-hmm. Very interesting indeed. I have a, an email here from a very distressed listener. Chris says uh, he's got gangrene and he was told that he uh, his uh, knee has to be, he has to be amputated, uh, and he wants to know. If is this the best option under the circumstances, or leaving the, his leg as it is, um, knowing that it won't take care of the problem, but would the problem get worse if he doesn't get his leg amputated? Well, when someone advises that you have an amputation, and I'm very sorry to hear that mm. because it's obviously an awful outcome for somebody. Um, Usually it's done with a very good reason in mind because this is not a trivial thing to do. 
obviously. And the usual reason is that either there is some kind of infection that cannot be controlled, a bone infection, or the circulation, the blood supply to the affected part of the body has become so poor that it's just never going to heal itself. And because the blood supply is poor, then you can't deliver the immune system and deploy the immune system in the tissue properly, and the tissue begins to break down because it gets overwhelming infection, and also you can't grow new cells because there's insufficient blood supply. Mm -hmm. This is quite common in people who have things like diabetes. And sometimes the only thing to do to make sure that person doesn't suffer an overwhelming life-threatening infection is to bite the bullet and say, we have to remove the affected body part. And so surgeons will then go as far back up the leg as it's safe to go, leaving as much of the tissue as possible in order that they give the person the best prospects for a um, prosthesis as well. So if possible, they'll try and go for a below-knee amputation because this preserves the knee joint and therefore the range of movement that the leg is capable of. But sometimes it's necessary where things are really bad or depending upon what's actually caused the uh, injury in the first place, trauma, infection, whatever, to go above the knee. Mm. So the doctors will be as conservative as they possibly can while maximising the health and other outcomes for the patient. Oh, shame. Okay, let's go straight to the lines. Joe, you are calling us from Florida. Hi. Hi, how are you? Fine, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to ask uh, Chris a question. What is aspartame? And is it good for human consumption? And uh, because I hear that it is something that uh, affects, uh, that uh, gives you Alzheimer's. Can you just uh, elaborate on that? Okay. <laughs> Hi, Joe. Um, aspartame yeah. is an artificial sweetener. It is made of two amino acid molecules, I think it's two alanine molecules, stuck together. And they are stuck together by a methyl group, carbon atom, between the two. And when they go into your body, then the molecule breaks up and it does produce a very tiny amount of methanol, which is the methyl group that stuck the two molecules together. Uh, me methanol is an alcohol similar to ethanol, and uh, if you have large amounts of methanol in you, then it can cause brain problems because people who have drunk methanol have ended up going blind and things like that. Sometimes it's fatal because it gets metabolized in your body into formalin, the same stuff that we use to embalm bodies. Not nice to have that washing around inside yourself. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of whether it actually is linked to Alzheimer's, I haven't heard any evidence for that. And I think that the amounts that we use, because it is extremely sweet, are so trivial in comparison that there's no good, solid, convincing evidence that this has a risk to human health. So, at the moment, it is viewed and regarded as safe, but obviously it's been a relatively recent time that, that it's been introduced for, and so I guess it's a question of we'll find out over time as more people use it for longer. But the, uh, the evidence is that at the moment it seems to be safe. Okay, and uh, I like what you're saying, Chris, because you basically have to have that for breakfast, lunch, and supper, and uh, large quantities for it to have any effect at all, if there is such an adverse effect. I imagine anyone who uses sweetener is just two little tablets with your tea. Uh, how many times a day? I don't know, but I can't imagine that someone would consume uh, the product in large quantities. There might be a more malignant effect of um taking diet foods though in a different way and we talked about this on our other main naked scientist program on the bbc about a week ago because what researchers are realizing is that if you use sweeteners especially in young kids this can fool the brain into thinking that sweet things have a lot less energy in them than they really have mm. 
And the consequence of that is that when you are presented with a sweet food that does contain a lot of sugar, you tend to overeat that option. Because normally the brain knows how many calories it's going to get from the taste of something. That's a learned experience to a certain extent. And that means that you stop eating once your brain works out from the level of sweetness how many calories you've probably taken in. If you, on the other hand, continuously use sweeteners, you can subvert the brain into thinking that sweet things contain far less energy than they really do, and this provokes overconsumption subsequently. And in tests on animals, they've shown that animals fed with these things of all kinds, not just aspartame, um, they all tend to overeat when offered the opportunity later. So one suggestion for why kids these days are piling on the pounds at a younger age than they should do is that perhaps they're taking or being exposed to these sweeteners and this is fooling them into overeating when they get the chance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, let's go to Georgie in Lone Hill. I'm so interested in the answer to this one. Hi, Georgie. <laughs> Hi, Reedy. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm very interested. Tim Noakes is endorsing the diet low-carb, high-protein. And what happens is your body goes into a form of ketosis. Now, in the olden days, ketosis was like taboo. It's not good for you. And I just wanted to know what the scientists... Mm. take is on that. And, and, and Chris, I must just say, I mean, Tim, no- Professor Tim Noakes is a world, is, is renowned in South Africa and elsewhere as a sports scientist. Uh, he's an avid runner and he's now done an about turn after telling people for years to carbo load before a major race. And in the last year, <laughs> he's been on a different crusade. He hardly, he has no carbs at all, has a high protein diet, eats nuts and all sorts of things, very limited fruit because of the sugar content. And he says he's lost a lot of weight and he's running even better than what he was in his uh, uh, heydays, and he's over 60 now. Who can argue with Tim Noakes? I've seen him speak. I, he came to SciFest. Mm. When we were at the SciFest three years ago, I can't believe it was three years ago, 2009, which is um, probably, yeah, it was 2009, and he spoke at that event. He was talking actually about water. And, and this whole idea of people wandering around with bottles of mineral water all over the place and the, the fact that this is a brilliant piece of marketing by the mineral water industry and totally unnecessary. Um, so he was a very good speaker. The idea about this is the Atkins diet, uh, after Atkins, the guy who unfortunately died a few years ago, he slipped over in the snow in America and mm-hmm. hit his head, um, but not, not before he had published this book which became a sensation around the world describing this phenomenon, which is that if you eat a lot of meat, then it puts the body, because of the way that proteins and fats are broken down in the body, into what they call a lipolytic state. So it optimizes metabolism for the breakdown of fats. And this means that you are more likely to metabolize fat elsewhere in your body and you lose weight. If you use or if you have a high carbohydrate intake, then what that does is because carbohydrates are very easy to metabolize in the body, they are preferentially used in the liver and uh, other organs up front. So if you then have some fat to go with them, because the carbohydrates provide you with all the energy you need, then it switches off fat breakdown, the fat is immediately stored, going straight on your bum and hips and elsewhere, and uh, Mm -hmm. you gain weight whilst simultaneously having a big surge in levels of insulin, because insulin is produced whenever you have sugary things. And this encourages further fat deposition and less fat breakdown. So this whole idea of putting yourself into a ketotic state, um, (laughs) it it has a reasonable biochemical basis. And who, who am I to argue with Tim Noakes? 
Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to get him on the show because it's it's created quite a storm. People are very confused. Some are excited. Some are sending us emails saying, we told you so, carbs are bad. But uh, there are dietitians and nutritionists, no. uh, 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 Chris, who are very upset uh, with his yeah, message. I mean, the fact is that we have evolved to eat a balanced diet. And the evidence is that the people who are healthiest eat a balanced diet. And that means that about 20 or 30% of their energy intake comes from carbohydrates. About 30% comes from proteins and carbohydrates. And the remaining 50% should be in the form of fats, the, the majority of which should be either polyunsaturate or monounsaturated, not saturated fat. And if you have those kind of balances, those sorts of people who eat in that sort of way tend to be the most healthy. Okay, let's take a break. And Paul, please stay on the line. I'm coming back just now. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. And we chat into the Naked Scientist, whatever you want to ask him. Our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. Mpo in Hatfield. Hi. Uh, morning, Reedy. How are you? I'm very well, guys. Welcome. I'm all right. Um, I have uh, two questions for the Naked Scientist. The first one being how um, physiologically is melanin produced, Mm -hmm. okay? And then the second one is, is there a difference between melanin and neuromelanin? Like melanin as in skin melanin or and neuromelanin? Okay. Hello, Mpo. Uh, melanin is the brown pigment that's in skin. It gives us suntan if you're pale and pasty like me. It gives you an all-over tan, as my friend Shibley likes to describe it, if you're of dark-skinned persuasion or extraction. Mm-hmm. don't know what, quite what the right word is there. But the chemical is produced from the amino acid tyrosine, and it's produced by a synthetic pathway which in the brain is also used to produce neurotransmitters, including one called dopamine. So areas of the brain that metabolize dopamine and also make noradrenaline, which is made downstream of dopamine in the same pathway, they accumulate a dark brown or black pigment called neuromelanin. And you build up this chemical in the nerve cells that make dopamine and they look black. So when you take a cross-section through the brain stem, which is the part of the nervous system where you make dopamine and also the locus ceruleus, the part of the nervous system where you make noradrenaline, you will see this bluey black pigmentation in the nerve matter there and that is the neuromelanin. I'm pretty sure that the chemicals are equivalent and identical but I will say I'll take a uh, a degree of uncertainty because I, I haven't actually looked at the structures but I'm pretty sure they're identical. I'd need to check. Okay, thank you very much, Paul. I have an SMS here from Fiona. says, why can't they make side view mirrors to more accurately reflect the distance of cars and objects the way the rear view mirror does? Uh, that's a very good question. Mm. I'd have to think about that before getting it wrong. Um, my instinct is that the because it often says objects in the rear view mirror may appear closer than they really are just to cover themselves legally don't they it may be that the curvature of the mirror in order to give you the best field of view has the effect of distorting your judgment of distance but i need to check this because it's an optics question and they're horrendously hard to get right off the off the cuff so may i take a rain check on that one and uh, and i'll check to see if there's an answer i'm not thinking of we're happy with that and sms says do insects feel pain when you kill them with an insecticide or doom for example <laughs> 
the way that these insecticide sprays work is that they contain a neurotoxin. Usually it's a chemical based around a phosphorus group uh, stuck onto an organic molecule. And they inhibit an enzyme called acetylcholine esterase. When nerve cells talk to muscles to make muscles move, they squirt out the chemical acetylcholine, and acetylcholine locks onto chemical docking stations called acetylcholine receptors, which are on the muscle cells, and they activate the muscle cell. And the effect is terminated by the breakdown of the acetylcholine molecule by this enzyme, acetylcholine esterase. So if you expose the nerve muscle junction to a chemical which immobilizes or blocks that enzyme up, then the connection between the nerve and the muscle, the chemical signal, can never be terminated, which means that the nerve continuously signals the muscle relentlessly. And this is how these sprays work. So you spray the chemical in, it's very stable, it's not broken down in the fly's body, it locks onto their acetylcholine esterase enzyme, inactivates it, and they signal their muscles to death. Effectively, all their muscles go into a sort of constricted state. I would guess this is probably like having an all-over simultaneous body cramp or tetanus everywhere. Um, I'm not sure whether insects feel pain. They certainly react as though they could feel pain. Whether or not they interpret the uh, all-over body cramp as painful, though, I don't know. But I would say it's definitely unpleasant. Mm, absolutely, it looks like it. Chris in Alberton, hi. Yeah, I keep on really What causes the uh, puza face? <laughs> what causes puza face? Chris, let me explain what that is. You better had. <laughs> <laughs> puza is a Zulu word for drinking right or to drink now yep. in the black communities when somebody drinks excessively it starts showing on their faces they've got these bloodshot eyes their lips are just skewed they go red it's it's just a funny face you can just tell that this person drinks a lot <laughs> so we say the person has a puza face so chris <laughs> wants to know what causes a puza face i would have thought it's self-explanatory too much puzzing chris <laughs> yeah yeah too much puzzing yeah um the answer to this is that alcohol has a number of effects and one of them includes on the blood vessels and when you drink a, a lot then it will cause vasodilatation opening up of blood vessels certainly in many vascular beds around the body and this includes in the face and that's why people who booze get very red-faced or plethoric and the pooza face that you're getting is because of enhanced blood flow to the face and the opening up of blood vessels in the eyes cause bloodshot eyes as well Add to that, you've then got chemical injury because the alcohol gets metabolized to acetaldehyde, which is chemically very similar to formalin, the stuff we use to fix dead bodies. And this means mm. you are literally pickling your tissues. So tissues in the body are seeing injurious chemicals. And this also means that then you open up blood vessels as well to wash out these toxins and repair the damage to the tissues. And that's part of what a hangover is. Oh, okay. Thank you very much, Chris, for asking that. And for <laughs> Brilliant question. <laughs> it is. Absolutely it is. Somebody wants to know, when do babies start thinking in an SMS? Well, there's a, a lot of evidence they start thinking in utero. Uh, people have done studies now showing that babies, um, depends on how you define thinking, obviously, but babies are born with certain food tastes depending upon what their mums eat. So if mums eat certain diets that are rich in certain things that have strong flavours that go across in the bloodstream into the baby, then the babies tend to have a broader taste repertoire or palate when they're born. So obviously they've got to think and learn to acquire those pieces of information. There's also lovely evidence that babies... 
uh, respond to their mother's voices when they're in utero, and they, when they're born, they're already crying with an accent. There was a story we covered here on oh. 702 a couple of years ago from uh, researchers in Europe where they compared the cries of babies born to French mothers and German mothers. They chose those two because French words tend to go up in the sentence, at a, up in the word, in a different place than German words. And so you can hear a very characteristic, either tented or, um, Im or inflected way of crying in babies born to mothers of these two different nationalities. So it suggests that the babies are already learning in utero um, what their mum's voices sound like and then imitating them with their cries, probably as a bonding thing, to, so that when the mum hears the baby, because the baby sounds a bit like she does, mm. there's, there's a closer bonding between the two. So I would argue babies are already thinking and learning in utero and the nervous system is intact and beginning to assemble itself from 20 or 30 weeks. So by 30 weeks, you've got quite a, a, a big brain which is quite well connected together. At 20 weeks, you've got a, a more primitive brain, but it's certainly got connections and is beginning to make some responses to stimuli. So sometime between those two, you've got the, the rudiments of a brain that could begin to learn things. Chris, have a lovely weekend. No puza face for you this weekend. Eh? <laughs> well, you never know. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> might give it a go. Bye-bye. <laughs>